Welcome to the Transit Lounge. I'm your host, Chandra. As a recovering workaholic, I want to explore how you can do more of what you love without burning out. I'm on a mission to promote true well-being, the contented state of being happy, healthy, and prosperous. Through interviews with savvy entrepreneurs, authors, and industry experts, we'll share insights, inspiration, and practical tips on how you can be CEO you in the business of your life. Let's go. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Transit Lounge podcast. Now, this is interview number three of an interview mini series that I have decided to do, which is where I'm interviewing a range of different people from different backgrounds and finding out about their significant career change and how they did it, why they did it so they can share their lessons and observations for you or for anyone who is considering making a career change. And so this interview today is with an awesome guy, awesome man, Steve Mummery, and I worked with him back in the day when I was very early in my radio career, and he has had a stellar career in media, in radio, television, and then he took a turn in his professional life and is now a marriage celebrant. And so I wanted to chat with him about his career path, if you like, and how that all unfolded, especially in the very competitive media industry. But then also being curious about, well, hang on, where did the marriage celebrant idea come from and how did that come about? And what lessons has he got to share with you? So here we go. Steve Mummery. Hello, Steve. Hello, Chandra. How are you? I'm good. I'm so excited about talking with you today because I don't even know how many years it's been since we've spoken. Far too many. Yes, let's just call it that. Uh, But I'm very excited that we're going to find out and share in the podcast today a little bit about your um, process of journeying from where you've been to where you are now. And potentially, you know, into the future of what's next for you. But to give some context for people that are listening, we met when I was a radio baby. (laughs) Me too. Yeah, well, that's true. (laughs) Back in PMFM days in Perth. And you were the program director at one of the big cheese bosses. And I loved working with you, just as a side comment. Really? Yeah. Why? Because you are fun and you're also passionate and you manage to channel that passion in a way that inspires others through enthusiasm rather than fear. And I think that's, unfortunately, in my experience, was rare. Thank you. I, uh, that is how I tried to lead, I, <laughs> I guess. A workplace has to be fun yes. in the end. And if you are not having fun at work, then you need to look for another workplace, <laughs> I feel. And, yeah. and I, unfortunately, I don't think a lot of people do have fun. No, I And agree. if I look back over the years with, my, with the different teams that I've formed, um, I think that becomes the underlying theme of the workplace. And there's been different types of workplaces, as we'll discuss. But mm. unless you have the right people uh, that have the same 
not only the same work goals in common, but the same values uh, and ethos and idea of, of coming to work each day, it's there's no point. Yeah. You, and you are just pushing shit uphill. Yes. And this is the thing that we spend so much time in our life at work that I couldn't agree with you more about how important it is to feel that sense of alignment with not only what you're doing for work, but the people that you're doing it with. And I also think that a big part of it, it does come down to leadership, both the leadership within the organization who you perhaps look up to uh, and also your own self-leadership. What are you bringing and contributing and how do you recognize when potentially it is time to make some kind of shift? And that's uh, probably the underlying reason that I left my last role of full-time employment yeah in actual fact uh at the top of the the organization i was working for there was mischief going on it wasn't people weren't um uh called on in the way they should have been yeah and and i don't think that sends a great message down the line to the rest of the employees and and everybody talks about it <laughs> yeah this is the except, thing. <laughs> except the people at the top. And, yeah. and they're not talking to the people down below who are all the people that are talking about, you know, the, the shit that's going on at, at the top. And, and therefore, it's a, it's a bit ostrich-like, you know, head in the sand. Therefore, I don't think they, they think everybody cares or, yeah. or that it matters. Yeah. So interesting. I just, yes, there's so much we could unpack and talk about with that. But I want to sort of dive in and go back in time a little bit. When we connected, was we were working in radio, but how did you get into radio? What was it that attracted you or how did you get started in it? Radio or TV was all I wanted to do as a kid. The, really? The first... like right from being, from being a kid, you knew? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, at the age of 10, it's like, I want to be on the stage. You know, mm -hmm. I went to my first, uh, my first theatre, you know, stage show or whatever, and, and I just came away from it going... Wow, that is the life for me. You know, yeah. I I want to be that person on on stage and that. So it's sort of uh, generated from that. But for some reason, I had a real affinity with with radio. I I loved listening to the radio, and I started imitating what I was hearing on it. And uh, before I knew it, I uh, had my own uh, radio station. Um, set up in a corner of Dad's shed, uh, which oh, it was a proper radio station. Like I, I teamed up by high school. I teamed up with uh, a buddy who lived around the corner who just also happened to be in radio, which not in radio, but into radio, yep. which was unheard of. Like it was one of those things you didn't talk about at, at school back yep. then. These days, if you wanted to be on radio or, or TV, you you wouldn't stop bleating about yeah. it at school or on your Instagram account or, yeah. or whatever. But back then, it was sort of unheard of. And, and to even talk about it with your parents, it was like, mm, yeah, but you know what? You'll go to high school and learn a trade. Get a real and job. A, and become a tradesman, yeah. you know, <laughs> because you're not that clever. You're not going to be a doctor. <laughs> and, and I thought, there's no way I'm doing that. I'm, I'm going to be, you know, on the radio yeah. or uh, in TV in some way. And I wasn't actually, as time progressed, I wasn't even actually fussed whether it was behind the scenes 
uh, in TV as a director or a producer uh, or even a cameraman or, you know, on on the air, on, on radio. So it was... It was just something about the media industry that uh, got me from a very early age. So I was very passionate about it. You know, like I, I, my favourite toy as a kid was Lego. And I I was making, you know, other kids would be making spaceships. And uh, I was making TV studio sets and <laughs> uh, and stuff like that. I'm not kidding. Like well, that, that's how much I was into it. And that's how young yeah. I, I was into it too, you know, playing with Lego. Fantastic. I mean, you know, twenty-six-year-olds playing with Lego. It's uh... <laughs> no, but you know, it was um, in me from a very early age. I had no idea how I was going to do it, and it was one of those things that, like, hardly anybody gets into it. Yeah. Um, as it was, it was uh, like most business works these days. It was. I ended up in there through somebody that I knew, yes. a girlfriend of my sister's, her brother. Uh, just happened to own and run a small radio station outside of Adelaide. They knew that I was into radio, and so they got me down for an audition when they were looking for somebody. I had no idea, you know, how to put an audition together, and I missed out, actually, the first time mm -hmm. uh, because I had no experience. Yeah, but except a few for months your garage. Later, yeah, that's right. <laughs> a few months later, um, you know, they called me back and said, here, have another go, and I did. And I got the job that time. Nice. So that that kind of clarity of this is the space that I want to play in was there from a young age and a willingness, it sounds like, to have a crack and not be too attached about what the particular role was. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I guess because, like, whether it was radio or TV, either of them was – determined too hard to get into it's so different today yeah. because like fundamentally I'm you know this is all just occurring to me now but I had no idea how to get into either of those industries and there was no media studies yeah. at school there was you know I'm 122 years old it sounds like <laughs> but there, say, none of this stuff just just existed and so it was I had no idea how mm. people got into it. And as it was, you know, I fluked it in the end just through knowing somebody. Through connections. But I think what's interesting is that even though there is so much more out there now in terms of training in this space and even the aspiration to be in this sort of space is just, you know, so far reaching, you know, what um, is defined as media platform anymore is so much broader. But for you, you mentioning that part of it came through connection, I still believe that that is hugely true and that the people that you are connected with in your network and how well they know what it is that you want they are a hugely influential tool and resource whenever you're looking to create and do something new absolutely so i think even though you are 122 or however old you said you sound like i think the fundamentals of that the importance of connection and reaching out to your network with a clear message about hey here's what i'm looking for can you help me do you know anyone i think is still valuable but people probably don't utilize it as much oh look i absolutely believe to this day that unfortunately oh no i think it's fortunately it's it's not what you know, it's who you know Yeah, that is going to get you jobs. So the more you can network, the more you can uh, explore 
people who knows who and, and all that sort of thing, the, the better off uh, that you will be. Yeah, agree. So um, you, you fluked your way into a, a radio gig and you had uh, a pretty stellar successful career in radio. How many years were you working in radio for? 25, I, oh, wow. I reckon it was. Yeah. Yep. And what sort of roles did you, I guess, uh, explore through those 25 years? Okay, so I started off as the night announcer, which is the lowest uh, form <laughs> of an announcer. As in, you know, that's where you start. There's less people listening at night, so there's more opportunity to make mistakes and get away with it. Yeah. And I travelled through, you know, regional radio stations. Just that's how you did it back in those days. These days, everybody just wants to go straight to the city and uh, yes. and and get the breakfast slot there, and they think they deserve it. And the big um, bucks too. And the big bucks, yep, that's that's what I'm hanging out for. But it, back in those days, uh, and there was a lot more regional radio stations then, and, and there were really well-known radio stations like that had uh, very good reputations back then. So after 12 months in that first uh, role, I went on holidays to Tasmania and basically did the, uh, the travel around to the radio stations there with an audition tape, dropped it off at each one, met the program directors, and uh, over the, the two weeks that I was there travelling around uh, Tassie, um, I scored a job. And nice. so I went back to Murray Bridge, resigned, and a few weeks later moved to Tasmania to 70X in Launceston and started a gig there on nights. But it was a bigger radio station than where I was. It had a really good reputation, and so it was the right move for me. And From that, I, went, uh, I moved through different uh, shifts and ended up on daytime and... I reckon it was about 18 months later um, I got retrenched, which was the first, you know, uh, it was retrenchment, but it was the first sacking type of thing, you know, the first time I'd been let go and that hurt. Yes. But I got a job at the opposition station there fairly quickly as a casual and was filling in on daytimes there while people went on holidays. I did that for a few months while I looked for another uh, permanent gig, found one in Albury at 2AY moved up there for about a year and a half, uh, from there to 3TR in sale. And uh, by that stage, uh, I'd become a program director and announcer. And then um, it was a matter of the waiting game, really. I just um, waited until I could get a job in the Cap City and I scored a job at Fox FM in Melbourne producing the breakfast show. Mm -hmm. And once again, that was somebody that I knew through somebody, you know, that I worked with at that very first radio station who had uh, progressed a bit faster than I had and was working at Fox FM, producing The Breakfast Show, then moved to Canberra uh, with the same company, with Austereo, as a program director. Um, I was program director of their two radio stations uh, in Canberra for about three and a half years and from there moved to Perth as a program director of their Perth station. Yeah. So the, there's a lot of change in that. When, and I, I think potentially with radio background, we forget you know, that that's not necessarily what most people experience, that as you maybe get a new job, it's not necessarily like, oh, now you're moving to this new place or this new city, this new town. But that was just kind of normal in radio, wasn't it, at that time? Yeah. That's how you got ahead. Yep. Like the next job, you, you moved around because the next job was a better role uh, and, and they tended to come around quicker than waiting at the same mm -hmm. uh, station, especially the regional stations. Like you, you, I wasn't the sort of person that wanted to stay in regional 
stations. I wanted to work in a capital city station. So each step from those stations was to a better station, a better position. and um, With the to, ultimate to... vision of, of getting a, a great gig in a cap city. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, nice. And so then you were at Perth and, you know, had a, a run of, of great success there in your role as program director there. What do you think contributed to your success in that role? Assembling the right team. Uh-huh. Um, when I, I took over 92.9, it was PMFM then, um, it was a shambles uh, <laughs> for a whole bunch of different reasons. But we slowly uh, built a, a good team, which included on the air and behind the scene. We got the station in my tenure there at 92.9, which was only about 18 months. I got them to the highest they had been in three years at, at 21.7 or something, I think it was, which is unheard of yeah. these days yeah. because radio's fragmented so much. And then they had the uh, the foresight to move me to their <laughs> other radio station there, Mix 94.5, uh, which was rating at number three. Occasionally it got to number two and because they felt they they could put a better person into 92.9, which they didn't. Um, it went downhill <laughs> yeah. from that point and never reached those dizzy heights ever again. <laughs> so that's one of my claim to fame. Yeah. And within one survey of moving uh, to, to mix 94.5, I moved it to the number one position and it didn't move from there for 10 years while I was there. And that, what's interesting to me about radio from a ratings point of view compared to a lot of other roles or industries is that the ratings results are a marker and, you know, there's, you know, lots of, you know, pros and cons with the way that they were done and all the rest of it. But it, as a measure of how you're performing, it was very, here's a result every every eight weeks or whatever it was. Um, oh, yeah. It, it yeah. was a report card yes. from school. Yes. That's essentially what it was. Every, yeah. every uh, you know, six weeks or something, you got a, a report card. Yep. You either got an A or a... <laughs> there was not much in between, was there? <laughs> no. Yeah. Like you're either number one or you weren't. That's yeah. all that mattered. Yeah. So you, you created and contributed uh, to that great run of success. And I think it absolutely you know, is awesome for you to have these, these benchmarks of, of claims to fame of the contribution and the results that you got in radio while you were there. And the run for 94.5 was you know, unheard of. But then you were going to make the move out of radio. Tell me what was going on for you that kind of led to you to think about making that move. You had all this success and from the outside potentially people would say, oh, you know, you're sitting pretty. Why don't you just keep writing this out? What was going on for you that prompted you to think, okay, I think it's time for a change? This is a really interesting area to go into and I don't talk about it very much. But after 10 years of keeping a radio station at number one, like it, it um, we really celebrated the milestones. Like I can't, I can remember to this day uh, the celebration we had when we'd been number one for a year. Like that was unheard of <laughs> back then. And uh, the, the the big ogre in the market was 96 FM. You know that it, that was the first FM station in Perth uh, years before and. Uh, when it went number one, it stayed there for six years. And, and we just thought, 
we were it in a bit getting there for one year. Yeah. But then all of a sudden it was two. Then all of a sudden it was three. Then it was five. Then all of a sudden we beat the record that 96 had been number one. And, and I mapped out all of these milestones along because they were goals for mainly myself, but also I made them goals for the team. Mm -hmm. As in, look, look what we've done now. Look what we've achieved. And that's to, that was to encourage them to keep the, uh, the foot on the pedal and, and make sure that we, we stayed there. We became the most successful radio station ever in Australia. Like, we were at number one longer than any other radio station, maybe not AM, like your 2GBs or yeah. 3AWs. I'm not sure what their records are. But certainly for FM, yeah. we'd been number one longer than any other station for a, a long way past it. I don't think it'll ever be beaten because radio is a different space it's changed these so days. Mm. So very proud of that. But after 10 years, and you have to understand, uh, 10 years in that, that same role as program director, you are in charge of the momentum of that radio station. And every couple of years, you, you literally had to reinvent the radio station, reinvent the sound of it so that it didn't become old and stale. And that meant redesigning the, the look and feel of it to, to listeners without changing it too much yeah. so that you didn't alienate them, <laughs> but changing it enough to make it sound fresh and, and new and vibrant and, and all that. And that, that takes a toll. That's a really hard exercise to do. And doing it every 18 months, two years, after 10 years, like I've, I'd used every trick yeah. that I, I had and some of them a couple of times. <laughs> it was a bit Groundhog Day. Yep. And the little thing niggling in the back of my head was after 10 years at number one, I started to think every survey that we won we were actually one closer to not being number one one day. <laughs> yep. And that's a, that's a really scary thing because I thought, I don't want to be here when it's not number one <laughs> one day. Like, I don't want to be the guy in charge when yep. it, it, that day that it's not number one. Yeah, you can get back on the horse and all that, but, like, after spending 10 years keeping it there, you don't want that day to come. That's a horrible, horrible day. Yes. So I wasn't actively looking for a job. I just thought if something else comes along, yeah, I would certainly look at it. I was actually being groomed at the radio station to be the next general manager. Yeah. Um, and so that was the next progression for me. And I was ready for that to happen. But it didn't look like happening very soon. And it didn't, actually. The, the, the general manager stayed there for another uh, decade, yeah. I reckon it yeah. was, uh, or at least eight or nine years. Once again, it's who you know. Mm -hmm. uh, a friend of mine was running the TV station here in Perth, Channel 7, uh, which had a, uh, an entity called Telethon, which is a charity. And it's the, that old Telethon thing of, you know, 24-hour broadcast once a year, but they spend all year raising money. So it was an actual trust. It was separate from the TV station, but it was run from within the TV station. Mm -hmm. okay. And it, it was a basket case at the time. It had been going downhill for a few years, making about $6 million a year for a, a few years, which isn't bad. But no, which, for a basket case, it's not, it's not too bad, but I guess yeah, relative to what yeah. they could do is... Not but it wasn't increasing, really, mm -hmm. so it was just sitting there. 
and uh, and the internal workings of it uh, was not working. He he just, um, according to him, he shot up in bed one night at 2 a.m. thinking, what am I going to do about this, uh, <laughs> with the answer in his head, oh, my God, Steve. Steve. So he gave me a call, put it to me, uh, because of where I was sitting from the stuff that I just talked about, it didn't actually take too long. My other love had been TV, which I'd never had a chance to, to get into, and I thought this is a chance to actually get into uh, you know, television production and have a say on on how this this 24-hour broadcast looked, and uh, which was a misguided one, so it, uh, it turned out. I thought, you know what, it's something new. Yes, I'll do it. You took the leap. Interesting how, I guess, the journey up through the ranks through radio, give, achieving your goal of, um, you know, the plum job in a cap city and you more than delivering in terms of the expectations of the role and then to have the opportunity to transition to extend into that that other love uh, came your way because of in part the reputation that you had built around you as a brand that uh, i guess created that 2am you know epiphany yeah it's it was a scary thing to do like to jump into a completely different career yeah but really really scary but you've got to be brave you've, you've got to go forth and and just have the confidence in yourself yeah yeah and that's a hard thing to do for a lot of people it's actually it's a hard thing for me to do <laughs> it, it might not appear on the outside but intrinsically I'm a, a pretty shy uh, person and and probably have a lot of doubt uh, about my uh, abilities and, and that sort of thing. So it it was a huge decision. Yeah, yeah, I can and that, imagine. That seems stupid. Like I'm hearing myself say that, and I think <laughs> you ran a, t- a radio station at number one for ten years. Like, how could you have any doubt? But you know, it's, it's part of my makeup. I do. Yeah, and I think that there's you know there's a lot of that which is human nature that you know we unfortunately are wired from a a neurological point of view to be on the lookout for danger and anything that is unfamiliar is designed to trigger the flight or fight response to make you kind of go no not that way we don't know what's going to happen that way stay here because we know this even if we don't like it we know this and that's safer than whatever the hell is behind that door and so Mm. I think that um, I think it's great that you've had the opportunity even to just say this out loud of reflecting back the trajectory of your career, but for you, uh, even just despite all of those amazing results, to still acknowledge your humanness of fear and, and doubt in making a change whilst also knowing that it was the right next move for you to you know, keep growing and to be brave and, and to back yourself through that despite the fear. Mm. Which I think it's is a hard thing, thing often, to do. Yeah, it, what, it can handbrake people um, from making change. And so then, with how long were you at Telethon for? I did nine years <laughs> there. You're so loyal, aren't you? I am. Yeah. And that was through some really, really tough times. And uh, I, I said before, uh, it was misguided that I thought I was, I was <laughs> going to, you know, have the say over this TV production because once I got in into the system there, uh, I realised that I had taken on a completely different 
career as a fundraiser. You know, I was the CEO of a charitable trust, which is a whole new learning curve. And uh, and that was really my job, to generate money, to put the, a team together that, you know, that, that made money for this telethon. Like they, yeah. it, It's a full-time job. They spent 12 months making the money that appeared during this 24-hour broadcast. And yes. it was really, really hard work. There was a lot of dead wood, but to put my own team together in there that had the right ethos, that was wanting to try harder, had the passion and uh, could deliver the results. So that that was actually the project. And I, I uh, dabbled in the on-air production side of it to, to make things look better. And I pushed and, and shoved my way through to... Uh, to make changes, which did happen, but it was it was a a hard hard slog and climb because there wasn't a lot of interest yeah. in changing yes. things. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess one of the things that I think is is occurring to me as a theme, and I may be slightly biased because this was part of my experience of of working with you, is that one of your strengths is around leadership and your ability to, I guess, have a vision and then to pull together the team that are going to help bring that vision to life. One of the things I am most proud of is my ability to put teams together. Yeah. Uh, to pick the right people and then to be able to guide them and 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 just let them go let them do their job and uh, um, not micromanage um, yeah it is picking the right people that not only can do the job have the ability but will gel with the rest of the team and with my ethos for how a workplace should be yeah yeah and it's and it is a great thing for you to be able to be proud of and i'm i've actually i'm so curious about when we look at what you're doing now how that plays out but we'll get to that so 9 years in um telethon reinventing that beast uh to you know pull it more in the direction that you could see it going in and then what happened with the next evolution did you have a a feeling that this was a direction you wanted to go in next or was it just I'm I'm wanting to make a break and have a change or did it was it a you know a 3 a.m. wake up reality for you it was like no I know what I want to do next how did that the the that next transition actually happen quite organically mm-hmm. really um for probably 5 years or so I had the idea of becoming a marriage celebrant and we go Where to did a lot that of... come from, Steve? Like, was is there anything that you can kind of go, oh, I remember having your, this conversation or whatever, or did it just sort of bubble up and it was just there all of a sudden? We all go to a lot of weddings okay. over the years. Most of them are not religious and in churches anymore. They're mostly, you know, outdoors and uh, done by celebrants and that. And so I've been to a lot of weddings and seen some average celebrants, yes. and and I, as the performer in me, stood there during the <laughs> ceremony, thinking, "I could do this so Let much me up better. there. Step That's aside. right. <laughs> Give me the microphone. 
Get out. <laughs> um, um, but uh, yeah, so that so that's where it started. Like I, I did think, you know, I could do a much better job than this. Like, how did this person? Why did this person become a celebrant? They're they're not very good. And then occasionally you'd see a really good one, and you'd really appreciate it and, and think, wow, that that was really good. And so I started to think, yeah, I could do that in retirement, actually, I think. You know, once, once I've retired, it would keep me busy. I'm not a, a, a sporting person. You know, I don't play golf. I, I have really shocking hand-eye coordination. <laughs> and so that's never likely to, to happen. So it's not like I'm, I'm going to play golf two or three times a week when I retire. So that, that's where it started. And a couple of years back, my nephew asked me to marry him and his fiancée. Oh. And so I thought, okay, I, I could do that and just have a celebrant come in to do the official bit uh, of the wedding, but I could run, you know, the rest of the wedding. Or I could actually pull my finger out and do the course. It's a full certificate for, you know, course that you need to study for and and, uh, and then you need to apply to the Attorney General's Department and then they don't believe that you've passed, even though you've got a certificate. So they make you do another exam uh, and then you pass that. And wow. uh, I know it's, it's a rigmarole. But anyway, that's, that's good. I'm proud that I, I did it. So I did the study and uh, became a celebrant so that I could uh, marry Josh and Amelia. And, and then I, I thought, OK, I've got that skill. So... That's so how it started. Did Josh ask you because he, you had mentioned to him about this potential retirement trajectory or did he ask you because of the, the connection and it was more about emceeing sort of thing? Uh, uh, well, okay. When I say Josh asked me, uh, <laughs> we, were, we were having dinner one night at, at our place and, uh, you know, they were freshly engaged and all that and, and I had had this in the back of my head about becoming a celebrant. And so I actually said, so um, who's going to marry you? Like, who, uh, have you picked a celebrant? And he said, oh, yeah, look, there's a guy that I worked with for a couple of months up in Townsville, and he's a celebrant. So, you know, I thought uh, we'd ask him because we'd like to have, you know, somebody who, who sort of knows us. He worked with him for two months. <laughs> so I just looked at him and I said, I'll marry you. Oh, I could be your celebrant. And so in my head, that's Josh asking me. Right. And then they, uh, they both looked at each other and went, oh, wow, that'd be awesome. So I, that, that's Josh and Amelia asking me. I Great. prefer the first version. Yeah, the first version does make it sound, you know, really uh, beautiful and romantic. But at the same time, what I love about that is that it's, it suggests to me that this potential future retirement plan was actually a, a new little fire that was starting within you and the thought of Josh allowing some random he'd known for two months to marry him was enough to kind of prompt you to kind of go, stuff that, I'm not going to sit through another wedding and That's watch right. some other doofus marry someone I actually care about too. That's um, right. I, I exactly. like that. I like that. So Josh still gets credit for the boot up the up the backside yep absolutely nice good one josh and amelia um and so then you you had to do all, all of the study I, I had no idea it was that involved to 
to be honest, I've not looked into it, but I, I didn't realize it was so involved to be certified. But then what happened? Like, uh, what sort of time frame? Well, uh, that was about 18 months before their wedding when we had that conversation. So I had 18 months to do it. Yeah. Um, I, I'd done it within probably six months or something like that yeah. because I wanted to make sure uh, I had it done. And it can take the Attorney General's Department about three months to say yes or no to you. You know, so that I'd, I'd researched all this information. So I thought, oh, okay, I've got to get it done. Yeah. And, and I also, uh, sorry, just to jump in, I also believe that when things are on in line for you, where you take, you know, considerable action, it's feedback for you that there's something here, there's something you've got to keep exploring because that's where you put your, your time and energy is linking somehow to either what you're valuing the most or what you're aspiring towards. So I think, you know, there's practicalities as well, but also I'm sure you were still very busy with your full-time job, but you prioritised to do this for many of those reasons. Oh, that's right. And we only have a, a very short period of downtime uh, in the role that I had. And so I, I had to strategically work out, okay, this is the only window that I will have uh, where I can spend the time to, to do it. Because it, it was um, over 120 hours of, of study and work and, yeah. and that, I think, to, uh, to do it. Yep. So I just had to, uh, had to get it done. How was the first ceremony? Well, the first ceremony, uh, theirs was going to be the first one, of yes. course, because that, that was the one I was going to do it. But as it ended up, uh, theirs was about number 11, what? I think. Yeah, I know. But once I'd become a celebrant and just put it out there to the universe, it, it stuff just started to happen. People find out. And, and in actual fact, the first one, I couldn't have asked for a better ceremony to be my first one. It was for two people that I knew uh, through Telethon, like they were uh, clients of, of Telethon, and, um, and and sort of sort of friends uh, as well. Like yep. you know, we really like hanging out. And I just got a random call one morning um, from uh, Christy, saying, "Look, uh, John and I are uh, about to head overseas for six weeks. Um, we just want to do a really quick ceremony. There's not going to be any family there." We've got it all planned in our head. We just want uh, two good friends of ours there, plus you and Paul. Uh, we're going to do it in um, a gorgeous hotel here in Perth one night and just have dinner afterwards with you guys, and, and that's it. So my first ceremony was a really intimate thing with, with six people there. It was a really lovely ceremony. It was comfortable for everybody because we all knew each other. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it was just perfect. And, in fact, that was one year ago last Friday. Oh, wow. It's like your yeah. anniversary. That's right. So from there, um, yeah, just word, word got out. Um, I um, through once again, through somebody that I knew from back in radio days, um, they worked for a, a marriage uh, sort of um, uh, like a, a marriage agency who do pop-up weddings here in Perth, which oh, yeah. are like fairly cheap um, pop-up weddings where they just, uh, this sounds a bit crass, but it's, it's a lot smoother and a lot better than this, but they just pop them out one an hour for a, a whole day. So you can do nine oh. weddings in a day, basically, um, and they have, you know, 20 or 30 guests there. They roll up literally at five to the hour. Um, 
we marry them, they have photos, they have cake and soft drinks, and then they, they go away. And it's a great, it's a, weddings are so expensive these mm-hmm. days, it's, oh, they get this for about 1500 bucks, I, I believe, yeah. and, um, and then they go, you know, wherever they want for, yes. the, for the, a big meal. Like they go to a restaurant, they can just book out a few tables for, for lunch, or they go back to somebody's house, or whatever is appropriate for their financial situation. Yeah. So it's quite a cost-effective way to do it. So anyway, um, they approached me as to whether I'd like to, um, you know, do some of their pop-up weddings, and, and so I did, a, you know, a day's worth of those, and that knocked another nine over, and, <laughs> you know, before I knew it, you know, like a year down the track, I've done about um, 30 or 40 weddings. Wow. And were you still working full-time at that stage? Yeah, I, I was, and um, because that that sort of stuff is just weekends. Yeah, uh, you know, most weddings are, are weekends, so it was easy for me to um, easy for me to fit in, and I had no no intention of um, of finishing what I was doing. Really, like I, I, I thought, I've still got a couple of years, you know, that I can do. But last year was our our fiftieth uh, telephone. Yeah. Um, and we, I, I mentioned earlier that uh, you know, making six million when I took over. You know, the next year after I took over, um, we made nine. The next year was twelve million. The next year was fifteen. The next year was eighteen. The next year was twenty. It just kept going up every year, to the point where last year um, we made uh, thirty-six million dollars. Wowzers! That's freaking amazing. In in a year. So, uh, and that was a uh, nearly a, it was like a nine or ten million dollar increase on the year before. Yeah. And and part of that was the sentiment of it's you know it was Telephone's fiftieth year. Yeah. So we had a lot of major supporters who really stepped up and and increased their their donations to help celebrate the fiftieth. So it was a huge year uh, making all that happen, and. And during the year, I uh, went through a very uncomfortable stage with um, hierarchy yep. where I felt prior to that that uh, uh, the chairman had my back and I had his back, but that started to become apparent that not to be the case <laughs> about halfway through the year, and I felt it uh, extremely unwarranted. Mm. And I struggled to to keep the momentum and the passion going. And in fact, you know, by about halfway through the year, about about July, I was ready to um, just to leave. Like I just thought, you know, what I don't I don't have to do this. I don't have to yeah. put up with this. Yeah. Um, my only interest ever was was making that entity solid and well uh, and famous and. And to you know improve the bottom line every year, which I had absolutely delivered. But I, I, it's not in me to just walk out. And our annual telephone was like in October, so by July it's so close yeah. that it just wouldn't have been fair, uh, mainly on the team if I had uh, if I had left then. So I thought, even though that's what I wanted to do, I thought, no, nah, just toughen up, princess. Uh, <laughs> let's get through this one. Let's have a, a, a fantastic. 50th celebration and uh, I'll call it quits at, at the end of the year which was the end of our cycle of that was the proper time to sort of do it you know yeah. and, and that was it I finished up on December the 31st. Wow um, 
And so in your mind, I mean, um, in some ways, the dissension through the year was kind of a little bit of a cattle prod, but then you being you and and the kind of ethos that you work by, you weren't just going to throw your toys out of the pram and, and leave. But at that stage, were you starting to think about, okay, I'm going to go and look for another job or did you have the, the, the vision that, oh no, I'm, I'm just going to be um, focusing on being a marriage celebrant? Like what, what was going through your mind at that time? Uh, I wasn't interested in, in getting another job. Yeah. I was exhausted. I was yeah. tired. Yeah. I, I've worked really hard for 40 years. Yeah. Oh my God, really? <laughs> uh, and uh, like, I, I mean, you know, I'm not a nine to five guy. I, I was, I started off, you know, an eight till seven or eight uh, guy. And over the years that, that sort of slowly got uh, narrowed in, but I, I've always worked until the job's done. And yeah. that does take a, a toll. Yes. Uh, I was really exhausted. And so I, I wasn't interested in, in getting another job. It's built in me to be a saver. Uh, I'd always saved well, and I, one of the reasons I had always saved well was so that if ever I got to the point where I needed to say, fuck off, that I could. Yes. And, and that day eventually came. Yeah. And so I thought, I've got, I've got enough money, um, you know, behind me to, um, um, to be able to live, but now I also actually can be a marriage celebrant full time and but not have to have the pressure of oh my god I've got to have a wedding this week and uh, yes. and that sort of thing I, I could grow into it and and that's what I wanted to do was to have some decent time off to myself to actually become a normal person again and yeah yeah just take some time to to actually build this next phase of my life my career I guess yeah yeah Awesome. And look, I think I'm glad that you mentioned about you being a, a, a natural saver because through the people that I speak with most often who are potentially at a point of either burnout in their current role or they have a dream, a desire of something else they'd rather be doing. But the thing that handbrakes them, I think, more than anything else is finances. And that people look at how will I replace my income, especially people who have achieved a certain level of success in their role, often who are people like you that are workers who work till the job is done and they're not clock watchers. They believe in what they are doing and what they're contributing to until it gets to a point where it's not working for them anymore. But that the, the fear of how will I make as much money doing something else keeps them stuck and I think that's one of the reasons why I do a little bit of work with people around their relationship with money, because without some kind of cash cushion, without discipline around creating a bit of a buffer, then your sense of choice gets handbraked pretty fast. That's right. It certainly limits where you can go and uh, and what you can do. I mean, look, to me, the most important thing is to have a plan. Mm. to do everything you can to get yourself in the right position to be able to do what you want to do. Yeah. And having that cash cushion, as you just said, is part of that. That's doing everything you can. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, sometimes you need to give yourself time to line 
things up. Yeah. And I think And don't don't leave a job until you have to. <laughs> Because yes. you'll miss the income. <laughs> yes. And especially if you're, if you're looking at starting your own business. Um, there, Lots of people ask me, because my partner and I ran uh, businesses as well as kept our full-time jobs for about nine years. We, we started Boost Juice yep. in Western Australia. We opened the first one and ended up with three stores while keeping our full-time jobs. <laughs> and that, like... Those nine years were intense, but there was a reason for us to do it. It was setting ourselves up for the future. But yeah. people, people ask me all the time, "What you know? Um, oh, I, I want to run my own business, have my own freedom, and and all that." What do you think? And I say, the first thing I say is, there is nothing like having a salary handed to you every week. <laughs> do not take that for granted. <laughs> and holidays, and sick pay, and all yeah. that. Once you're working for yourself, there's no let-up. Yes. Like, don't don't plan to have a holiday for the first two or three years, yeah. seriously, because as soon as you stop, the business stops. Yeah. And this is the thing where, you know, your tip around, you know, have a plan, I think is so important because you will always underestimate how long things will take to do, and even no matter how much you back yourself, there are elements that are going to be outside of your control. And the last thing that you want to be in is in a, a desperate situation where you've got bills piling up and no prospects in terms of money coming in because that is just a world of pain all around. But I think sometimes what happens is people either do what I did the first time, which was it, I was okay because I think I was a natural saver too and had a buffer, but I... I left my radio gig in Perth. Just I decided that I wasn't going to re-sign my contract and uh, I had no clue what I was going to do next. I just knew that I couldn't see myself being happy signing a contract for more than maybe a, a year. And when I knew that that was the case, I, was, I knew I was just hedging my bets and I thought, well, that's, that, that's a cop-out so you may as well just leave now. Uh, and I don't necessarily recommend that approach unless you do have a reasonable financial cushion to support you through taking some time off while you figure out what you want to do. If you know what you want to do, then start taking some actions like you did as a side gig of, all right, well, there's some study that I need to do and I need to get this accreditation. I'm going to do that in the evenings and on weekends. And the reality, often people say, you know, I don't have time, I'm working full time. But the reality is there is so much time that's discretionary time that is just set, spent, you know, watching crappy TV or, um, you know, binging on Netflix or, or whatever that people, if they really had a vision and they really wanted to create change, they can direct some time and energy and investment into whatever is next for them instead of just hoping something turns up. Exactly. I just had a bit of a um, rant, I, sorry. No, I, and I had this conversation, this exact conversation with um, uh, a friend um, just a couple of weeks ago who uh, wants to be a pilot, is a pilot on smaller planes, but mm -hmm. wants to you know, work for Qantas and, and that on the big planes. And um, he is currently a bus driver on the mine sites yep. because he can earn a fortune doing it. Yep. And he, he said, but I think I'm going to leave because, you know, I just, uh, I'm bored. I, I hate it. 
And we talked about, um, you know, so what does your day run like? And, oh, well, it's up early and the first couple of hours are, are really busy driving people to the site on the bus and then there's I don't do anything for about uh, four hours and then you have to drive them back at the end of the day. And I said, so what do you do during the four hours? Oh, you know, nothing much. I want to do more. I keep asking them, you know, what else can I do? And they say, just hide. <laughs> because that's all that they want him to do. Yep. And I said, so why aren't you using this time to do your study that, to, to get that next stage of, of what you need to, to be doing? Because yep. he had already said earlier in the conversation that, you know, oh, geez, I've got to finish that study. And he said, oh, I don't know, because yeah. I, I don't have to. Yep. Like, I can just sit around and hide in the bus. And I said, so take your books in the bus and just <laughs> do the study. What's up with you? Like, I, I just wanted to shake him. Yeah, yeah. Because he's, I said, you're looking at, to me, you're looking at this all wrong. You're bored in your job. But look at, this is a gift horse. Yes. You are getting paid a fortune. Yep. To not use your brain, just drive a bus, and you could be using your brain during the day getting paid, paid yes. to do the study. Yeah. Look at it. Why aren't you looking at it that way? But this is the thing that people often just get caught in their little loop and they get into that whole, you know, oh, one day I'll do that, or I'd really like to do that, but I can't, or whatever story that they shop around. And I think that what I'm yeah. really curious about is what is it that it, it's going to take to get people to make that leap, that step. And I'm, I'm really curious about why is it that as human beings we, we seem to have to wait for some kind of crisis to land upon us or the universal boot before we will go, right, now I'm going to get in the driver's seat and make some choices for myself. And I think that's the thing that I'm, you know, really wanting to break in as many people as I can of, um, you know, for me, radio I left because I knew it was not meaningful for me anymore. I was successful in many respects surface-wise, but I wasn't feeling, you know, satisfied with what I was doing. But then when I went into the corporate gig, the human development um, role that I had, that was great for a couple of years, but it it killed me. Like, I ended up being diagnosed with severe adrenal fatigue. I was completely burnt out because... I let it go too long before making myself important enough to make a different choice about. And I think that's unfortunately what I see. And I did it myself, so I can't really rant too much. But I don't think it needs to be that way. I think a lot of people just need that kick. Yeah. All right. So one thing I'm curious about is when you did your certification and the first time that you put out... I think on Facebook or whatever channels you used to say to people, hey, I'm a marriage celebrant now. How did that feel to you? Was there anything kind of coming up for you before you put it out there? A, a sense of great achievement. Yes. Absolutely. And, and pride as in, wow, I can marry people. That first wedding was an actual, actually a secret. They didn't want anybody to know until they arrived in the Greek islands. Of course, they were going to the Greek islands. <laughs> and so I, I couldn't actually say anything. And, of course, it's the first wedding, so you're bursting <laughs> with, with pride. I think the post I put online the next day or that night even was, um, 
I marry people. I think that's all it said. I marry people. In, in fact, I married two people tonight or, you know, something like that. Yes. And that's that was my thought bubble, really. Yep. I thought, oh, my God, I can marry people. Yep. Like, that's that's an amazing thing to be able to do to me. Yeah. I was really, really chuffed and, and proud of being able to do that. And marriages, uh, you mentioned before, you know, the amount of time and study it took. The reason it takes that is because marriage is the law. Um, you know, there, there are laws surrounding marriage that you, as a marriage celebrant, you have to be familiar with. You have to know back to front for when all the different scenarios come at you of people wanting to to marry. Um you know, they've, they've got to have documents to support um, what they're trying to do. You know, if they're, if they're divorced or, or whatever, you, you have to see all of these um, documents and you have to understand the law around marriage. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what you're learning basically through that um, through that study. So it's it is yeah, it's an amazing thing to be able to do, and I am very uh, proud. To, to be able to do it. Yeah. It's, it's so exciting. Yes. Because what do you think is most meaningful for you about what you're being a marriage celebrant? I think the ability to be able to marry people. Like it is such a significant moment in people's lives. It's happy. Uh, it's joyous. It's an intrinsic part moment in, in, in you know, those people coming together that uh, you're responsible for, really. You know, you're responsible for legally and you're able to make it happen legally for them. So it's a a really joyous moment. And it's, you know, it's a moment of of great celebration as well. The same thing goes for funerals as as well. As in, I, I find it's an amazing privilege to be able to stand there and and officiate over the celebration of somebody's life. That's, so you, uh, so your had. your certification includes you being able to do funeral ceremonies. Well, here's the thing, Chandra. <laughs> you don't need certification to be able to do a funeral. It's oh. only weddings. There's no law right. attached to funerals that the celebrant is involved in. You're mm-hmm. not legalising anything. Interesting. So anybody can actually conduct a funeral. Mm-hmm. But uh, yes, so I've done um, uh, I've done funerals. Uh, funerals are solemn, but it, my way of looking at them is for it not to be a a cry fest. It, it should be a celebration of that person's time on planet Earth. Yeah, and I think I mean that leads me into thinking that that uh, I realised since connecting with you recently, that I think you're one of four people that I know that in the last probably couple of years have become marriage celebrants. And that was kind of like a little curious observation that that I, I made about that. But it's also made me think about how potentially society is evolving into what they what people want now for these significant events in their life is different from what people used to want or was just the done thing but are you noticing any kind of shift in terms of what people are potentially asking you for or what their vision of of their day includes 
Uh, I mean, the shift has already happened. They're not doing them in, in churches uh, anymore. Or, you know, not, not as many. Yeah. I, I'm actually quite surprised. Well, am I or not? Um, I, I'm, you know, I'm sort of surprised how many people uh, come to me not having any idea of what they want in the ceremony. Um, it's mostly left up to, to me to guide them and just mm-hmm. make suggestions, you know, oh, you can do this, we can do that. They don't, most of them are fairly, they, they want an informal, fun ceremony, but they they understand and they want it to be serious at the serious bit, but the, the rest of it, you know, they don't, they don't want a religious type of ceremony. That's yeah. basically what it comes down to. And obviously there are people that still do want that, and that's, that's awesome for yeah, them. For but them. Yeah. I, uh, the sort of ceremonies that I do, they're, they're always unique. There's a, a story uh, to tell about the couple and their relationship, how it's developed, and that's usually where the humour and fun elements are. Um, there's no daggy readings. Uh, I've got a, a bunch of really good contemporary-sounding readings, and I just open it out to the couple and, and, and see what they want, but most of them don't really have much of an idea other than we just want, you know, a nice informal sort of ceremony. Yeah, nice, awesome. Um, So have you got any final tips or a word of advice? If someone's listening and they are doing something at the moment that's either not fulfilling them anymore or it's run its course or there's something else that they think that they might want to do, what, what piece of advice would you offer them? I would say to learn, learn, learn. <laughs> Take the opportunity to learn new stuff that you never had time to before because you actually do have time, like we were talking about before. You yeah. know, don't watch TV uh, for one night a week or whatever. Create time. There is time yeah. to to learn stuff, to put you in the right position. It comes back to that having a plan Thing. you know do everything you can to get yourself in the right position to be able to do what you want to do yeah and sometimes it takes a bit of time yeah don't leave your job until you have to <laughs> said that before yeah um when you do make the jump and you are running your own life and your own business use a calendar Yes. I I have the tendency to become a sloth. Like I know within myself that I could easily just get up in the morning and turn the TV on. I'm that sort of person. I'd get bored, but I wouldn't care. Right. So I actually have to uh, keep myself motivated. Like I actually have to work quite hard to keep myself motivated and there's tools to do that. Like I use a calendar. I lived by a calendar when I uh, was on salary and, and uh, working for someone else. And so that was my first tool. I use a calendar on my computer at home and I block out when and where I'm going to do stuff every day. I've, I've relaxed the rules. Um, like I don't start work until 10.30 in the morning, um, but I still actually work until the, until the job's done. Yeah. And so sometimes that's 6 o'clock, 6.30 at night. But my payoff, uh, my bonus for making this change is that. 
that I don't start work until 10.30. And before 10.30, I can do whatever I want. I yep. can go for a walk along the beach. I can clean the barbecue. <laughs> um, I can do whatever I, I like. Don't stay in your pyjamas <laughs> if you're working from home. Yep. Don't put off the hard stuff. Create a business plan with goals and KPIs just like you would be doing if you were working for another business. If you were running another business, you would have a strategic plan with goals and, uh, uh, you know, key progress indicators, KPIs in there that uh, – um, and, and then um, give yourself a tough review every three months mm-hmm. to make sure that you stay on track because nobody else is going to. Yeah. <laughs> There's no board above you that's going to call you out on, on stuff. So when I say give yourself a tough review, the emphasis is on the word tough. Like, yeah. be real. Yeah. Don't say, oh, well, there's a reason for that. You yes, know. they've got plenty of um, excuses that we can deliver for ourselves. But ultimately, it just comes down to asking yourself, you know, did you play full out? Where where yeah. did you show up and where did you take action and put effort and where didn't you? And how do you, yeah. how do you refocus and begin again for the next quarter? Yeah. Don't use yourself as an excuse, basically. <laughs> yeah. There's no, oh, well, it's only me in the office. Yes. Because you knew that was the case from the start. So that is just an excuse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think there's so much that um, you know can carry over from the employee mindset that if you bring that into um, your own business, that there's some things that if you can bring them over, they can work well for you. But there's many things that if you bring them over, it's actually going to undermine because there isn't that external structure and prodding or meetings and things like that, that, you know, or accountability expectations of by when are you going to finish that piece of work? Because I can't do my bit um, Mm. that require a different kind of focus and skill set and a little bit of that discipline around how you use your time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, um, it is too easy to uh, fall off the wagon when it's just you. And, that's and, where I, and it's three o'clock in the afternoon and you're sitting in your pyjamas. Yeah. That's where I think one of my observations is regardless of what the transition is, whether it's going to go from one uh, employed role to a very different kind of role industry, the influence of, and we're coming full circle, of the people that are around you and the people that you're connected with to ensure that you are pulling together a supportive collaborative team now whether they are a team that you actually work with in your role in your business or whether they are just in your circle of friends and connections who are on a similar kind of course in terms of having that work ethos of of, um, wanting to contribute and to be on that you know that learning always learning kind of um, mindset as well I think that's something that I've observed too is really important because not everybody understands what you're going through, especially when you're going to use something of your own that um, people that have never done that, they just don't have the same reference points as you. So surrounding yourself with people that can support, encourage and keep you accountable is a a really important element, I think, in business success too. Yeah, it's really important, really important. So Steve, if people want to find out more about you if they've got some kind of uh, significant event, uh, moment and event coming up where they are looking for an awesome celebrant, how do they find out more about you and what you do? My website is SM Celebrant, as in Steve Mummery Celebrant. So it's just the initials, SM Celebrant 
smcelebrate.com.au. My email address is pretty simple. It's steve at smcelebrant.com.au. Nice. I will include those links in the show notes for this episode. Steve, thank you so much. I know we've gone long because there's too much to chat about, but thank you so much for chatting today and for sharing your story and your insights. I know that there are people listening who will have got great value out of hearing that. And um, Mick and I have actually had two wedding ceremonies already. We got married in Bali, but it was just it was a Balinese ceremony that wasn't recognised here. So then when we got back, we did the following year on our anniversary, we did a um, register ceremony. Um, yep. So I keep telling Mick, when's the next one? But the next one, I think we might need to book you. Well, I'm available. I know where to find you now. Yeah, <laughs> smcelebrant.com.au. I'll just say it one more time. Uh, here's an idea. Why don't we all go back to Bali and do it properly? There's a perfect idea. I'll get on to Oh, no, it. hang on. I can't marry you in Bali. I can marry you in Australia, but we could go to Bali and just do the rice field thing and uh, yep. and and blessings. Yes, Let's, <laughs> there is definitely there are there are ways we can make this happen. <laughs> Thank you so much, Steve. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Transit Lounge. If you liked it, please do me a favor and leave a review so I can keep doing more episodes for you. And come and say hi in the private Facebook group, The Transit Lounge, being CEO you in the business of your life. I really look forward to connecting with you there. And until then, do whatever you can to create a future that you will love through the choices you make today.